Hello, and welcome to Beach House 34, the show that dives deep into true crime cases, revealing the truths behind crimes that reveal shocking secrets. Stories sure to make you just a little more paranoid, and maybe even lose sleep. Here is your host, Christine Wirth. Hello, and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime Podcast. I want to give a very warm welcome to all of our new subscribers, And thank you to all of you who have liked, commented, or shared episodes. It does not go unnoticed. Thank you. Thank you so much. All too often, I talk about cases where a criminal has finally been caught, but we later learn that the criminal has in fact been in jail or prison before, sometimes many times. It kind of causes you to wonder why. After a certain number of times of getting arrested for the same thing, you know, over and over again, these criminals keep getting released. Now, I distinctly remember this kind of thing happening from the case of the toolbox killers that I did in episode number three. I can't tell you how often they were arrested. They were, they served their limited amount of time. They were let go. And this happened multiple times before they finally ended up, you know, killing these poor girls. In this case, we find though that the criminals were finally arrested for a final time, but not until after they had raised a family of six kids, they had countless grandchildren, and then ultimately decided to murder some people. This is the case of Ray and Faye Copeland, the murderous grandparents. In 1989, an unusual arrest took place. Ray Copeland, who was 75, and his wife Faye, who was 68, were taken into custody from their 40-acre farm in a small village called Mooresville, Missouri. This village was home to only 100 people in 1989. And actually, when I looked it up today, it sits at about, or as of 2020, 101 people. So a very, very small place. It sits just 12 miles outside of Chillicothe, Missouri. Now, Ray, thin, gangly, he was in a long-sleeved plaid shirt with a large collar and blue overalls. Uh, His very aging face, it showed the signs of working long hours outdoors. And Faye, in a long-sleeved white-colored shirt, her hair was combed back hard against her head. They both sported handcuffs as they were led from their farm. They were arrested on charges of conspiracy to steal. And after being arraigned on a Tuesday, October 10th of 1989, were each held on a $25,000 bond. The Copelands had a 40-acre farm, and beginning Monday, October 9th, 1989, the police and investigators, along with a series of excavation equipment and search dogs, scoured the farm. No one knew for what, and the sheriff, Leland O'Dell, wouldn't say. Neighbors, however, speculated. They spoke about how the elderly couple was considered unfriendly and how even though they were unfriendly, they had a lot of visitors to the farm. Visitors that seemed to disappear just as fast as they had arrived. These visitors were all men, some young, some older, who would show up, be at the farm for a few days and then just vanish. The neighbors also talked about how Ray Copeland seemed to be fixated on taking care of the acreage. They began to wonder if maybe the police were searching for bodies. Investigators would leave the property with small paper bags, dozens of them, but no one knew what they contained. On Wednesday the 11th, just two days after the digging began, the county coroner was on site. But again, Sheriff Odell wouldn't talk. The farm was sealed off and no one was allowed inside. This same day, another man who used to work for Ray Copeland, a man by the name of Jack McCormick, was also at the farm. And again, nothing was forthcoming from the sheriff. J. 
Jack, this Jack McCormick guy, he used to work as a middleman in livestock purchases for Ray and Faye Copeland. Now, Jack, it turns out, was the person who had filed a complaint against the Copelands. What had happened was Jack, when he worked for them, had purchased several head of cattle from various livestock markets and paid for them with a check from his own account. Now, this account was actually set up for him by the Copelands. What Jack then did is delivered the cattle to the Copelands, who then turned around and sold them. They kept all of the money they received from that sale. Now, Jack's check bounced because there wasn't enough money in his account to cover the purchase. But the Copelands also never made good on the check. Even though they had turned around, they sold these livestock, they got extra money for it, they never gave Jack any money. Now, Jack was subsequently arrested for his role in this cattle scheme, but Jack is adamant that he left the Copelands after he had found a human skull and bones on the Copelands farm and was in fear for his own life. Now, the Copelands, they, or the police, never made a discovery of a body on the Copeland farm, but what they did figure is that the information that they had was good enough to arrest the Copelands on charges of conspiracy to steal because, as it turns out, the police had actually been investigating them since 1986. On October 16th, about a week after the search of the Copeland's home began, police received a, another tip that led them to another farm. And this farm was actually owned by a man by the name of Neil Bryan. Now, Ray, for the past 20 years had worked for Neil as a contractor and he did odd jobs around Neil's farm. Now it was inside a barn on Neil's property that the police located three bodies buried in a shallow grave. They had all been wrapped in plastic. Nine days later, another body was located, but this time it was on the farm of Joe Adams. Now this body was also buried in the dirt floor of a large barn that was used for storing hay. Ray Copeland had also done odd jobs for Joe Adams. Now after these bodies were located, teams of officers scoured wherever they could, looking for other remains. They searched abandoned farms, they searched wells, they searched fields, but they couldn't find any more. Now, after these bodies were located, there was a news conference, but again, not much information came of it. The police wouldn't even disclose the sex of the bodies, only that they were human bodies, and the cause of death had not yet been determined. Now, it wasn't until a few weeks later that three of the four names were released. These men were all known to be transient workers, and we now found out or find out that they had all been shot in the head with a small caliber rifle and buried in shallow graves inside a barn on Neil Bryan's property. These men, the first three men that were found, were Paul Jason Cowart, 21, of Dardendale, Arkansas, and it was found that he was killed around May 1st of 1989, the same year that the Copelands were arrested. The next victim was Jimmy Dale Harvey, who was 27 years old, and he was from Springfield, Missouri. He had been killed around October 25th of 1988. And also in 1988, but in December, was John W. Freeman, 27, of Tulsa, Oklahoma, who was also found within that barn. Now, officers indicated that all four of the men, they had not yet identified the fourth man, had been staying at the Victory Mission in Springfield, Missouri. Now, the mission's purpose is to help those in need to find shelter, food, and clothing, and to help them become independent and give them tools to rebuild their lives. It actually still operates today. It was well known that Ray Copeland often made frequent trips to the mission looking to hire workers for his farm. And it is said that there are still eight other men who had at one time or another worked for Ray Copeland. During the search of the Copeland's farm, police did find a rifle. 
Now, it didn't mean very much to them at the time that they found it, but upon discovering that all four of the men that were located, uh, the places where Ray Copeland had worked, worked that they had gunshot wounds to the back of their heads, it became a really big point of interest, obviously, right? The youngest victim, Paul Cowart, who was 21, he still had a 22 caliber slug lodged in his skull. And it was this slug that matched the rifle found at the Copeland's farmhouse. Now, after the match of the rifle was made, both Ray and Faye Copeland were then charged with murdering at least three transient workers. Each of them faces three counts at this point of first degree murder. And the prosecution, of course, wants the death penalty in the cases. The charges for the conspiring to steal cattle and then sell them, which was what they were originally arrested for, were dropped. Now, as of November of 1989, the fourth body that was located, as I mentioned, had still not yet been identified. When the Copelands appeared for their arraignment, they appeared separately. Now, Faye, she appeared to be very confused and it was evident that she had been crying. She tried to speak up and say something to the judge, but her attorney stopped her, advised her, hey, don't say anything. When the judge did tell her what the charge was against her, all that she said was, I know that. Ray, during his proceeding and known to be hard of hearing, was asked by the judge if he was having a hard time hearing the proceedings but Ray never said a word. At this point, the bond for each of them was set at $500,000 each. Now, it was learned that Ray did in fact go to Victory Mission in Springfield, Missouri and hire workers with the promise that he would pay them $50 a day. But here's what he did. He would then help them set up a P.O. box and then a checking account. The workers that were hired, then went and purchased cattle using the accounts, which Ray promised that he would fund. The workers would then purchase the cattle, write a check, and the check would subsequently bounce. Now, Ray, in the meantime, had possession of the cattle and would then turn around and sell them. And he made himself a tidy little profit off of this while the worker who would receive would just end up receiving a bounced check notice and nothing would tie, at least on paper, Ray to the worker. Now, earlier I had mentioned that an investigation had been happening since 1986. Now, this was when the scheme first came to light to the police. A former employee of the Copelands had written a bad check and an investigator had begun to look into this case when it just stalled. It wasn't until Jack McCormick had come forward and told the police about the human skull and the bones that he had found on the farm before he left the Copelands that the case then found this new life. So even though Jack was in jail for passing this bad check, of course it was because of him that the Copelands were even looked at at all. So Crime Stoppers actually voted to give him a $500 reward for coming forward. So at least something good came for Jack, uh, to Jack for stepping forward. Now, in late November of 1989, now the Copelands have already been arrested uh, and charged with three murders. Another body was located. This body was found in a well on the property of Joe Adams. Now, this is the same location where the fourth body had been located. Now, even though they've been charged with three, the fourth body had not yet been tied to the Copelands. And here was body number five. Now this body was found after officers used a grappling hook and they snagged a work boot with a foot still in it. Now the well was 30 feet deep and the body had been weighted down with a cinder block chained to the chest. The well had been checked previously, but it was full of water at the time and police didn't find anything. As the months went on and the weather grew colder, the well water receded, making it easier to find the body. And this well was actually located about 150 yards from the barn where they found the fourth victim. And this particular tip happened to come in from an anonymous source. So here we have this elderly couple. They live on this uh, 40 acre farm. I mean, he's in his seventies, uh, she's 
late 60s, and they're being arrested for murder. Um, I mean, one wonders how does this happen? And I will get to this story. So what happened is that in December of 1989, in a Livingston County, Missouri grand jury did indict Ray and Faye Copeland, each on five counts of first degree murder. So since this time, the fourth victim was identified as Dennis K. Murphy of Normal, Illinois, and the fifth victim, which was the one that was found in the well, was Wayne Warner, who was 44, of Bloomington, Illinois. Now, as the initial stages of the trial began, it was determined that Ray Copeland's jury would actually be selected from a county over 200 miles away because of pre-trial publicity. So no sooner did these initial stages even get started when Ray's defense attorney wanted to have Ray's competency for trial checked. So according to his attorney, quote, Ray is totally deaf in the right ear, partially deaf in the left ear, and partially blind. He further said that Ray has had difficulty in communicating with him since he was charged and arrested nine months ago. As Ray's trial is in hiatus for his competency hearing, Faye's trial begins. So as her trial begins, here is where we start to learn more about the entire background and how everything kind of came about. So as Faye sits at the defense table, she's crying very quietly and appears to be distraught. Uh, there was one point during the opening remarks of the prosecution that she had mouthed the words, that's a lie, and then seemed to cry. Now, a piece of evidence, however, was shown by the prosecution. And what this was, was a list of names that had been taken from the Copeland's house. It was found, this list was found tucked inside a camera bag, and it included the names of the murder victims. Next to some of the names was an X. Other names had the word back after their name. Handwriting experts testified that the list was written by Faye Copeland. One of the witnesses that took the stand against Faye and will take the stand also against Ray was Jack McCormick. And remember, he was the man who had called the police after leaving the Copeland farm, believing that he had found a human skull and bones there. Now, Jack said that he had worked for the Copelands for about 15 days before he started to become pretty fearful of Ray and fled. He said, I thought my life was in jeopardy. Jack testified that he had met Ray in early 1989 and that Ray had hired him from the mission. He and Jack had come to Ray's farm near Mooresville and then Ray talked to him about the cattle buying scheme. Now, a neighbor of the Copelands also testified at Faye's trial, and she admitted that she sometimes actually spied on the Copelands using field binoculars. Uh, she would often see the Copelands bring male strangers into their home to work with their cattle. And she actually did end up IDing one of the five men who had been found murdered and said that he had worked for the Copelands. She and Faye, had talked about the transients, um, but on one occasion, a dispute ended their relationship. And according to this neighbor, Faye told her, quote, oh, those young boys, they don't want to work. They want to grow their long hair. Another man who worked for the Copelands also testified at Faye's trial, Lothar Borner of Dallas. Uh, he had actually been living at the Souls Harbor Mission in Joplin, Missouri, when he was approached by Ray but the thing is, is that Ray had identified himself as Mr. Jones. Now this Mr. Jones asked Lothar if he would want a job working as a cattle buyer for $50 a day plus room and board. And when Mr. Jones discovered that Lothar had a wife and a stepson with him at the mission, he quickly lost interest. About a month later, he again ran into Mr. Jones and Lothar at the time told him that, look, he and his wife were not getting along and he changed his mind and he would like to have that job. He then gathered his things from the mission and got into the Copeland's pickup where Faye was waiting. Now, Lothar testified, quote, every time I brought up my wife on the trip back to the farm, Mrs. Copeland would say, forget about her. 
He said that like the others, Ray helped him rent a P.O. box and helped him set up a bank account. In Lothar's bank account, Ray deposited $200, and Lothar immediately was nervous because he knew that this was not enough to buy cattle. At this time, he still believed that Ray was Mr. Jones until he happened to see a magazine addressed to a Ray Copeland at the Copeland's home. Now, the next time he was made aware that Mr. Jones was not who he said he was, was when they had gone to a cattle auction and one of the men looked at Mr. Jones and said, quote, Ray, been writing any hot checks yet? Lothar then decided that he, he was just gonna forget all this business. He wanted to go back to Joplin. So Ray put him in the truck, drove him back, but along the way, there was a young hitchhiker. And Ray decided to go ahead and pick up this young hitchhiker. And Lothar then overheard Ray offer this young hitchhiker the same kind of job that Lothar had just had. As the man got into the pickup, Lothar warned, warned this guy to just continue on to wherever he was going. Look, this wasn't worth it. Don't do this. Lothar had hoped that the man had actually listened to his advice, but he testified that a plaid shirt and a black jacket was found at the Copeland farm had belonged to the young hitchhiker. The head bookkeeper for the community bank of Chillicothe then took the stand in phase trial and she testified that one of the transients that had worked for the Copelands had opened an account using the Copelands address. Now, when his account was closed, a certified check was mailed to the Copelands address, but it was returned. Faye then shows up at the bank and she tells this woman, quote, she didn't know where I got the address, that she didn't know the man, and she didn't want us sending any more mail. Their mail carrier, then testified that he was the one who had delivered this certified letter to Faye and she had signed a receipt for it. Quote, she handed me back the letter and said she didn't know who John Freeman was. John Freeman was one of the first three men to be found shot in the back of the head. Another bank representative testified that Jimmy Harvey had opened an account at his bank in October of 1988. And one of the last checks to clear the account was one for $500 to Ray Copeland. Jimmy was also one of the first three men to be found shot. Now, Faye's defense attorney wanted to portray Faye as an abused wife. And as we get into the story, um, this a lot more of the background, I can kind of see where they're going with this, right? Um, however, it doesn't mean that she is not responsible this. I mean, obviously she kept a list. It's had an X next to those that were dead and a back if they had come back to the farm. So anyway, she's you know on the stand. They want to try and make her appear as an abused wife. Uh, so Faye's daughter-in-law took the stand and she testified that she would hear Ray and Faye argue and had often heard call Ray call his wife stupid and that Ray had more than once ordered Faye to shut your mouth. One of their sons also testified that he too had heard his parents argue and that Ray always seemed to have the upper hand, but he never saw Ray hit his wife. Faye did take the stand, but refused to testify. Instead, she said, quote, I wish not to testify in my own defense. Now, it didn't take jurors long to return the verdict and they came back actually just a couple of days later and decided that she, yeah, she should receive the death penalty. Now, Faye, she felt utterly betrayed by the whole justice system. She later gave an interview to a newspaper and said, quote, I just want to go home. I want to go where I can be free, where I can work, get back my health and be myself. I just want to be myself again. She said that she will always love her husband, but not as much now. Quote, he has done me great damage. I begged him time and time again to please stay out of trouble. We had our home and everything paid for. We were on social security. So why would he turn around and mess all that up just like he has? Now it's unclear as to what she meant when she said that the farm was paid for because a bank did foreclose on the mortgage of the 40 acre farm. And this is when Ray 
actually began to bring men to the house. Faye would cook for them and she would wash their clothes and evidently never questioned her husband as to why those men were there or why they left so quickly. Quote, I was not involved in anything he did. I don't know where he picked them up or where they went. Now, Faye evidently was quote unquote shocked that the bodies of men that had worked for them had shown up murdered. Quote, I don't think there was anybody more surprised than me. He was always the father of my kids. I just loved him so much. It just didn't seem right. This life is too precious for anybody to take. God didn't put us here to take another life. I feel sorry for the families. If there was any way I could bring them back, I would. Now, when Faye was asked what kind of husband and father Ray had been, she said, he had his problems and I had mine. Faye admitted that she essentially raised the children by herself. She also almost always worked outside the home. Quote, I worked all the time. I had to keep my kids fed and clothed. $40 of the money that she made would go towards the monthly mortgage payment, a $40 mortgage. Different times, right? In the meantime, Ray, Ray's trial has yet to get underway. Now he's still in the process of undergoing this testing for mental competency, yet the same morning that Faye was sentenced to death, the attorneys for Ray pitched an offer to the prosecution. They would give them a guilty plea that they wanted if they took the death penalty off the table. They totally refused. Now, eventually three doctors did say that Ray, despite some senility, is mentally competent to stand trial. Now, one psychologist, however, didn't believe so. He said that Ray, who was 75 at the time, is irrational and could not help lawyers defend him on the five counts of first degree murder. Two weeks later, though, a judge found that Ray was in fact competent and he would in fact go to trial. Now, Ray's trial was set for March. And of course, in the meantime, his attorneys are filing dozens of motions, all of which went nowhere. But here's, here's what Ray decided to do. He decided to call a local news station. Um, no one was expecting it. And evidently the call came in to this news station and Ray had said, quote, this is Ray Copeland and I want to talk to a reporter. Now in this conversation with the reporter, he said, of course, that he was innocent, quote, I never killed anybody in my life. Me and my wife lived together 50 years. We never killed nobody. We never hurt nobody. And we never talked about hurting nobody. I hope that me and my wife will fall over dead in the next five minutes if we done this. I know I can't get a fair trial. This has been all over radio and TV, quote, Ray and Faye Copeland, the man killers. They haven't got no witnesses at all that saw me shoot anybody or bury anybody. Some of these boys stayed with me a week or 10 days and then they took their money out of the bank and just left. Because these boys left some dirty clothes and a suitcase at my house and just because they found a list of three names in my house, they think we did it. They think there's three more men out there, but I don't know where they are. Now, obviously, it's he's desperate, right? He knows that he's been caught and he's doing what he can to get his own version of the story out to the public. He was then warned, obviously, not to speak to anyone other than his attorneys, but you know, the rabbit's already out of the bag. He's already done it. Now, ev eventually, Ray's trial did get underway and Lothar Borner, the same man who testified at Faye's trial, also testified at Ray's but he gave a little bit more information. Lothar testified that he remembered Ray saying to him, quote, there's a sucker born every minute. Lothar was actually on the stand for most of the day in the first day of testimony. And he told about his life of working with Ray and Faye Copeland. He had only lived with the Copelands on their farm for three days when he had become suspicious on the second day. And this is when he realized that Mr. Jones whom Ray had introduced himself as was really Ray Copeland. The pitch that Ray made to Lothar was that he needed someone to help him buy cattle because he was deaf. Now Ray promised him $50 a day, seven days a week. While staying with the Copelands, he went to one cattle auction, but didn't buy any livestock. Lothar testified that Ray, quote, dropped him off 500 yards from the sale barn. He told me when we get to the sale, not to talk to him or act like I know him, unquote. 
The day that Lothar decided to leave, he told Ray, quote, I feel like you're doing something wrong. Lothar later also talked with newspapers and said, quote, I figured out what was going on with the checks. I didn't know about no murders, but I knew those checks were going to get me in trouble. I know now I was lucky. Two additional men took the stand. One was James Page. Uh, he had spent about three weeks at the Copeland's farm, and he was actually there when the Copeland's were arrested. Just like in Faye's trial, uh, Jack McCormick, also the man who blew the whistle on the Copeland's in the first place, testified against Ray. Both of the men, both James and Jack, gave similar stories of how Ray would offer them $50 a day plus room and board, and that they had told him he was hard of hearing and couldn't understand the auctioneers at cattle sales barns. Both James and Jack told of getting P.O. boxes and then opening checking accounts with $200 that was provided by Ray. Now, Jack said he wasn't broke because he'd inherited some money and offered to pay for the P.O. box. Ray then told him, quote, I was the first tramp he hired who had his own money. Both men described going to cattle sales with Ray and his wife. James said that their procedure was for Ray to sit in the back of him, behind him, and nudge him when he wanted him to bid, stopping when the price got too high. Now, a question obviously came up then asking if Ray had hired them because he was hard of hearing. Why was he then nudging them after hearing a price from the auctioneer? Uh, Page further said that after his bank account was open, the first thing he had to do that Ray made him do was to write a blank check to Ray. Now, Ray's explanation was that if they should be killed in an accident, he wanted his wife to be able to get the money out of the account. Jack testified that when he went with Ray to an auction, Ray told him to buy a, quote, carload of cattle, which Jack thought meant about 40. Now, Jack was concerned because Jack only had about $2,000 in his bank account, so he only purchased three head of cattle and this made Ray pretty angry. So when Jack finally told Ray, look, I want out, I don't want this anymore. The next morning he was woken up around five o'clock in the morning. He said that Ray had a 22 caliber rifle and he told Jack that he wanted him to help him get a raccoon out from behind some hay bales in the barn. He told Jack to quote, poke a stick into the hole and get the coon out. He then looked at Ray He's holding this rifle. He was holding it towards me. He said that when Ray went out to, then when Ray left the barn to go get a cattle prod, I don't know why, he noticed that there was a tractor in the barn and attached to the tractor was a trailer on which there was a sheet of plastic and a shovel. When Ray got back, Ray pointed up to something in the that he had fixed, he pointed somewhere up in the barn, and when Jack turned back around after he'd been looking up, he saw the rifle pointed at him. He said that Ray told him, I wouldn't shoot you, Jack. Just like in Faye's trial, the same neighbor who had been spying on the Copelands with field binoculars took the stand. She testified that she once overheard a conversation between Copeland and her husband, Clarence, in which Copeland allegedly said, quote, these young boys won't work. They ought to be shot or knocked in the head like they do in Arkansas. As the trial continued, relatives of the victims were brought onto the stand. Uh, one woman, the grandmother of a man who had been found in the well, said she had last seen her grandson at a restaurant with Ray Copeland. Quote, I told him I didn't want him to go. A jailer then testified that he had overheard Ray talking about, quote, lots of bodies. He had taken Ray to make a phone call in jail just a month after he'd been arrested. Now, the jailer overheard Ray tell someone on the phone, quote, there are lots of bodies out there if they know where to look for them. Family members of two drifters who also went missing while they were associated with Ray Copeland testified. Their bodies, though, had never been found. Uh, once the jurors were sent in to deliberate on the case of Ray Copeland, it only took them two hours and 20 minutes to find him guilty. Uh, his defense team then tried to argue that there wasn't any reason for Ray to get the death penalty because he had suffered a series of minor strokes which was affecting his mind. Quote, he suffers from dementia, a loss of, in a loss of intellectual function. 
So when the death penalty phase did get underway, it took the jury only two hours to say that, yeah, he should be sentenced to death. So how do a set of grandparents, a set of couple of elderly people get to be in this spot in life? You know, quite possibly the oldest people on death row. Well, as it turns out, all of the warning signs were there for years. With Ray, especially, when Ray was in fourth grade, he quit going to school. Now, this is not to say that if you stop going to school at fourth grade, in fourth grade, you're gonna end up being a criminal. I'm just using this as a point of information about Ray. When Ray was 18, it happened to be right in the middle of the Great Depression. Uh, he had an older brother, John, who would receive a government paycheck each month for $31. Now, Ray, one day, went down to the post office. He stole the check, forged his brother's signature, and then cashed it. The next month, Ray did the exact same thing, but this time he did it with his cousin's monthly check from the WPA, the Works Progress Administration. Now, the WPA was an agency that employed men who weren't formally educated to carry out public works projects like the construction of public buildings and roads. It was dissolved in 1943. But according to John, to and remember, this is Ray's brother, quote, dad and mom argued that he didn't do it. They stood by him and didn't make him pay him back. So around the same time, according to Ray's brother, John, their parents also bought Ray his first car. Now, Ray still lived with his parents in Northern Arkansas in his early 20s. And while he was living there, according to his brother, John, Ray stole two hogs from his dad. He then took them to Eureka Springs, Arkansas, and sold them. John said that, quote, dad knew, but didn't do a thing about it. Ray had this uncanny ability to gain the sympathy and confidence of others, only to use it to his advantage. Past employers all describe Ray as a likable, charming man when it served his purpose. From 1938 to 1971, Ray was charged at least 10 times for cattle theft, check forgery, and writing bad checks. When he was 22, Ray was arrested for forging a U.S. Treasury check. He was sentenced to six months on a federal charge and six months on a state charge, which ran concurrently, but he was let out in six months. Now, Ray and Faye met when she was 19 and he was 26. Four months after they met, they were married by a judge. Now, Faye had come from a family that had little or no money at all. So when she met Ray, who was always bragging about how good he was at making money, Faye was impressed. After they were married, their first child was born within the first year of them getting married. Their second child would arrive two years later in 1943. In 1944, Faye was pregnant again when Ray decided that they would move, just pick up and move to rural Fresno County, California. Now, Ray's sister and her family lived nearby within the area. When Faye did give birth in 1945, it was to their only girl. Now, it is unknown how they got there, but the whole family is now moving virtually across the country with a four-year-old at this time, and a one-year-old. And now another child has been added to the mix. That same year that Ray's like, hey, let's go ahead and move to Fresno County, California. He decides that he wants to go back to Arkansas. So Ray moves the family back across the country. Two years later, in 1947, their fourth child would be born. So again, another cross-country trip, but this time with the four-year-old and a one-year-old and a child who was just born. In 1949, just two years after their latest child was born, Ray moved his family yet again back to California. Faye, at this point, is seven months pregnant with her fifth child. So again, another cross-country trip but this time with a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old, and Faye is seven months pregnant. 
That same year, you'll never guess what they did. They again moved back to Arkansas. But now, in addition to all of the other children, a baby was in tow. The last move from Fresno County to Arkansas was, quote, done in a hurry, according to Ray's sister. And she wasn't sure exactly why, but she does say that Ray had been accused of stealing horse saddles from a man that he had worked for. Now, shortly after they, they were back in Arkansas in 1949, Ray was arrested on felony cattle theft charges. And at this point in time, he's 33 years old. He was convicted and received a one-year sentence in Little Rock. Now, since the family had no money, this is something that they used to do, the entire family was forced to move in with Ray at the prison while he was in prison. When he was released, he again moved his family, but this time to Missouri. Again, Faye was pregnant with her sixth child. And this child was only 14 days old when Ray was arrested again in 1951 for stealing a calf from his employer. The farmer had asked Ray to look after the farm for a week. And during this time, he stole a calf and sold it. Now, Ray wasn't convicted of this theft, but instead, his punishment was actually to work on the judge's own farm for a few months. According to one of Ray's sons, quote, dad could do just about anything. He couldn't figure things out too well, but he just got right in there and did it. Dad did not work hard though. He always found the easy way of doing things. Now, one of the landowners who had employed Ray for over 15 years in Missouri though, said that he respected Ray as a man who would take on physically demanding tasks without whining. Quote, he was hardworking, from early in the morning to late at night, and he didn't stop to bullshit with the neighbors. Now, once Ray had completed his time on the judge's farm, he and his family again up and moved. They left Missouri in 1953 to go live in Illinois. They moved to a rural location outside of Brighton for about a year until they moved yet again to a rented farmhouse in central Illinois. One of Ray's children said that, quote, dad would come in and say, quote, pack up, we're leaving in the morning. We change schools more times than I can remember. When they were in central Illinois, Ray was convicted three times and sentenced for writing bad checks and stealing and forging a check. Three of their kids said that Ray, as a dad, never showed them any affection, never recognized their birthdays, or even gave them anything for Christmas. Quote, the only time he spoke to us was to tell us what to do, how to do it, or to criticize you. Now, even though Ray always seemed to have a great big wad of cash on him, he would only buy each of his six children one pair of shoes and no more than one or two pairs of overalls to wear every year. Quote, kids at school used to make fun of us because we wore the same clothes every day. Ray also used his kids as hired help. They were required to hand milk dairy cattle morning and night. Now, Ray, he wouldn't let them wear their only pair of shoes, which were only for school. So what they had to do is they had to go barefoot, even when it was cold outside. Quote, we used to mush our feet around in cow shit to keep them warm. One of the sons said that as he was milking, one time he was probably around 11 years old, a cow kept kicking her metal shackles off. Quote, dad came in and told me how dumb I was for letting her do it. And then wham, he took the cow kickers and knocked me in the head with them. This same son also broke his wrist when he fell from a hay wagon. He said that his dad made him continue to bale hay the rest of the day with that broken wrist. Another time, he said his dad accused him of not checking on the cattle after school, quote, I told him I did, but he didn't believe me. He grabbed a hammer from under the seat of his truck and he hit me over the head with it. Mom took me to the hospital. Not long after that, I joined the army. The boys would often say that their dad often said that killing quote unquote derelicts would be quote, doing society a favor. Now in 1961, Ray's oldest was 21 and his youngest was 14. 
Ray was again arrested for defrauding a man by writing him a $2,960 bad check for 20 head of cattle. Ray again was sentenced to a year in prison. He was sentenced to a year in the Vandalia, Illinois penal farm, and he spent nine months there. Not long after he was out, literally, he got out, he was arrested, remember in 1961, spent nine months in, in the penal farm, and was arrested again in 1962 on another bad check charge for cattle. This time, it was around a $1,900 check to a livestock auction for 19 head of cattle. Again, he was convicted and he again spent another nine months at the Vandalia, Illinois penal farm. He was released in 1964. And guess what happened again? He was arrested for yet another fraudulent check and spent yet again another year at the Vandalia penal farm. Now, according to some of the kids, some of their kids, Ray and Faye's children, their mom didn't tell them anything. Quote, she always told me he was down there working on a farm for a guy. Well, I guess <laughs> technically, right? The kids felt ashamed because while he was there, the family had to go on welfare and purchase clothes from the Salvation Army. Faye, in the meantime, she was rarely home because she was busy working to make ends meet. In 1965, after serving his latest prison sentence, Ray then moved his family yet again back to Missouri. He found a farmer on the outskirts of Chillicothe who was willing to exchange farm work for allowing the Copelands to live in the farmhouse on the land. And Faye found work at a local manufacturing plant. Now this arrangement didn't last long. Um, it's unknown why, but they again moved to a farm, but this time outside of Utica, Missouri. And this is only five miles west of Chillicothe. By this time, there's only one child left at home. And the Copelands who are now in their fifties decided to, for the first time, buy their own home. So in 1967, they bought a house and 40 acres of land for $6,000 near Mooresville, Missouri, with a $500 down payment and a $40 a month mortgage payment. This is the same location where they would be arrested in 1989. Now, Faye made most of the mortgage payments while Ray spent whatever money he had earned uh, doing odd jobs, but Faye didn't know what he spent it on. A retired Missouri Highway Patrol investigator remembers Ray as a guy who used to brag about how easy it was to make money. How exactly he made this money was an obsession for this investigator for two years. And he is quoted as saying, quote, I really tried to get that fucker. The investigator said, quote, he used to pick up alcoholics in Salvation Armies or who were hitchhiking. He'd bring them over to Chillicothe and take them around to livestock auctions. They'd sit apart and Ray would tip his hat when he wanted the hitchhiker to bid. And, but instead it was a little similar um, to what he was doing recently, but instead of setting them post up with post office boxes, which is of course what he was doing when he was arrested in 1989, he would do something a little different. He'd have the hitchhiker sign Ray's name on his check. When the guy who owned the auction came around and told Ray that his check was no good, Ray would say, hey, that's not my signature. Check with the bank. Somebody stole my checkbook. Ray would then resell the cattle. And by the time the checks bounced, the man who had forged Ray's name on the check was nowhere to be found. The investigator was never able to prove anything because he needed the men who forged Ray's name. There was one time though, when an investigator caught a break, he did find one of the men in a Salvation Army in Illinois. And he, this man gave the investigator a statement and told him that Ray had introduced himself as Roy Moore and told him that he owned 1,100 acres in Northwest Missouri. He told him that Ray quote, offered to teach me how to buy livestock and he would start me at $300 a week. The man then went with Ray to Chillicothe. The problem was, was after the statement was given, they couldn't keep the man sober enough to come to court and testify. So Ray again was arrested in 1971, but this time he was arrested in Ozark, Missouri. 
and arrested on yet another livestock-related bogus check charge. So you'd think that they would learn by now. Evidently, it was after this latest arrest, and I don't know why it took her this long, that Faye finally said, quote, if you ever again get in any trouble of any sort, I will not help you. I will not even be around you because I don't believe in getting in trouble. For 16 years, nothing happened. So it seemed that Ray had listened to his wife and was probably for the first time in his life living clean or, or he had figured out a way to keep everything under the radar. And that's kind of my personal guess. In 1986, Ray knew that Ray and Faye, the family, was having money issues. So what he did is he began to bring men to the home to do work for the Copelands. When Ray's sons told him, hey, you're being investigated again for bad checks, Ray evidently said, quote, I ain't done nothing wrong, even if I had, they're too dumb to catch me. After the arrest and conviction of Ray in 1989, his brother John said, I love him because he's my brother, but I don't feel sorry for Raymond. Ray's sister then said, if you want to know the truth, I think he's possessed by the devil. Ray ended up dying in prison in 1993 at the age of 78 while awaiting execution. Faye died in 2003 in a nursing home where she had been released on medical parole. She was 82. You know, this is one of those cases where you're just shocked, literally, at who was arrested and what they had done. I mean, if you were to see this couple on the street, you would just simply think that they were nothing more than a pair of, you know, aging grandparents and nothing more. Um, this simply just goes to show you that you can never, ever judge a book by its cover. But on another note, too, um, I do realize that during the time that all of this was taking place, you know, a different time, different um marriages, different attitudes about some things. So, but still, uh, what a tough life, I, regardless. I mean, obviously the man had no interest in anybody caring for anybody but himself. Um, but then again, and there's, you know, Faye who waited quite a while before she spoke up about anything. So in the end, you know, she was also charged as a murderer, even though she might not have pulled the trigger. And that'll do it for this episode. I know I've been running a little behind lately, so expect to see another release of another case um, later this week. I don't want to make any promises quite yet because the one I'm working on is kind of lengthy, but coming soon. As a reminder, you can find all of the resources for this episode within the show notes. And I hope everyone is having an awesome summer. I know it's almost over and uh, fall is about to begin, but that means Halloween. I don't know about you, but I love Halloween. But Nonetheless, um, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening. You are so appreciated. As a reminder, if you like this podcast, you keep finding yourself coming back time and time again, just press that like or favorite button so that you can keep up to date on all of the upcoming episodes. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. We will talk soon.